Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Now, can you plug Jesus Christ into a stage with bombs going, smoke blowing, hair teased up to the moon in skin-tight spandex and leather, bouncing around with a bass guitar and rubbernecking while the crowds scream? Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. This is Adam Sane, and I have with me, unbelievably, Luke. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> That's right. How you doing, Luke? Good, man. I'm, I'm the only one of your friends not in jail. <laughs> well, I don't think we need to go there. Uh, anyway, uh, we're just going to get straight into the guest. You and I will talk a little bit later, but... Uh, I have on the line, after a round of technical difficulties for about 30 minutes, on my probably on both of our ends, I have uh, Michelle Balanchet. And Michelle is a, uh, she is a, psych- describe yourself as a psychic medium, is that correct? It is one of the titles that's given to right. me, yeah. And I'd say an occultist, and uh, Michelle, you were also in uh, Paranormal State. The, the, the show Paranormal State that was on uh, A&E for a while. And yep. uh, just kind of like uh, to go in, if many of my guests are not familiar with you, um, what it is that you do and um, and who you are. Well, what a lot of people who've seen Paranormal State see me as is as a, is as a psychic medium um, on the show. Most of what you get to see do is go uh, frequently blindfolded into locations and rattle off my impressions of the haunting or, or whatever activity is going on there. But 
what you don't usually get to see is behind the scenes, if Paranormal State were supernatural, I'd be Bobby without the alcoholism. Um, or if it were Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'd be Giles. With maybe Spike's fashion sense. Uh, uh, I knew the uh, the PRS crew uh, before they had the show Paranormal State, and a lot of my work with them initially was because I'm I'm a scholar on on the occult, on myth, on folklore, on hauntings. Uh, I maintain a library of about over three thousand books on those topics, and am a writer myself. Three thousand books and counting, so it's probably closer to thirty three hundred at this point. Wow. Um, right and on. it's it's nonfiction stuff, so like uh, I've got I've got pretty much an actual library. So there's sections on reincarnation, world mythology, world religion, folklore, psychology, uh, ancient civilizations, ufology, uh, the paranormal, ghosts, hauntings, poltergeists. You name it, I probably have it. Well, you're perfect for this show then, because we've talked about all the all that kind of stuff on this show. Mm-hmm. I'd say just about any of that and all of it. But uh, one of the things that we've kind of touched on a lot on this show, and it's kind of been through, uh, let's say, Luke's interests and uh, some other guests that we've had on, has been kind of the uh, has been the occult. Uh, we've touched on that in a few different ways: uh, conspiracy topics, uh, uh, talking about um, <clears throat> some people coming from like the more the the Christian uh, field uh, perspective on it. But I wanted to get kind of, you know, as someone that is an expert on it, your perspective about what the occult is and also kind of like its significance and its history. Well, the word occult um, simply means hidden, something that is uh, in the shadows uh, and therefore something that seems mysterious. Now, most people hear occult these days and all they hear is the second half of that. They hear occult. And they think that that means that it's, you know, big and dark and spooky and out to sacrifice goats in the woods at midnight. Um, But the actual word occult, it it shares the same root as occluded or or any other word that is uh, about what's hidden. Um, And the history of what is the occult, especially here in Western civilization, is usually things that are a little bit outside of of mainstream, whatever is at the time mainstream religion. So occult studies encompass anything that involves uh, magic. Uh, what we call the paranormal now actually would fall under the blanket umbrella of a cult, uh, at least in you know past decades. It can range in everything from the, the study of, of demons and demonology uh, and the, any of the practices from ancient times onward that involve uh, binding, banishing, or otherwise dealing with uh, demons and other spiritual entities, as well as any other practice of magic, ceremonial magic, ritual, etc. Again, it's, it's anything that's outside of the boundaries of what we accept as, as normal uh, religious expression of you know, supernatural experiences. What is... Uh What's kind of like kind of some of the history of it? Where does the occult come from? Um, I know that that's kind of a multifaceted question because you're dealing with like more like a series of beliefs than you are dealing with like one overarching. <coughs> but well, the, if I had to say, I think the easiest way to answer that would be to start where where does magic in the Western world, our idea of an actual real practice of magic, so 
practices that allow us to deal with spirits, um, whether they are uh, demonic or uh, benign, uh, as well as angels, uh, any sort of practice that allows people to exert their will upon the world around them, either through incantations, spells, uh, or, or simply the, the exercise of their will. If we want to trace that part of the Western tradition all the way back, we would have to go to Sumer, Babylon, and Akkad um, in the cradle of civilization. So at the very beginning of what we understand as Western civilization, uh, as soon as humanity could write things down, uh, while there were religious rituals for dealing with the gods, there were also rituals and magical practices for dealing with everything else. Uh, spirits, demons, and all of the weird things that walk around in the shadows and you know just outside of the bounds of what's accepted. And if I had to give you a blanket answer of like where what we understand is the occult now started, it was in those practices of dealing with all the things that laid outside the bounds. Now, in um, ancient Sumer, Babylon and Akkad, this actually started off as stuff that priests, there were priesthoods that were dedicated to dealing with all of this weird stuff. And over time, what, what happens is there is the accepted, organized religious approach. And then the practices get in the hands of other people who are not necessarily uh, trained within the priesthood and therefore not necessarily controlled by the organized religion. And those tend to be the people who are identified um, more as sorcerers or wizards and are perceived as practicing the occult, the, the hidden doctrine, the hidden practices. Now, these things are not one single thread. You're, you're not going to be able to, to open a book anywhere in the world and find, you know, the, the, the magical occult practices that were uh, in place back in, like, ancient Babylon that have been handed down over generations to us unchanged. That, that simply doesn't exist. But there are definitely traditions that have grown out of various cultures and have been handed uh, down or at least have influenced other beliefs over time. So you have the, uh, the Sumerian and Babylonian way of dealing with uh, what they believed to be demons, um, spirits that were more powerful than regular humans, but uh, a little bit less powerful than the gods. Many times they were believed to come from the gods, uh, and they had a very very involved way of, of dealing with them, binding them, protecting people from them, identifying their influence in people's lives, uh, to the, the ceremonial magic that was practiced in um, predominantly Christian Western Europe, uh, and I'll do this from like uh, the 12th century onward, in uh, texts like the Heptameron, things like the, uh, the Solomonic tradition, and, and again, really, it's a huge, complicated blanket term for anything that was a little beyond the bounds of what people ex accepted as, as mainstream, organized, ordered, and controlled ways of dealing with the supernatural. Right. How much does role does like paganism and um, animism play in in kind of like the the formation of the of the occult? Modern pagans uh, practice a, a religion which is in part inspired by 
ancient practices uh, like shamanism and animism, where uh, the world was believed to be peopled with spirits and intelligences. Uh, in a sense, you know that that ancient world for uh, non-monotheistic religions was a world that was alive. Everything was alive, and everything was sacred. Uh, now, again. It's not that there was a, a single thread of tradition and belief that was handed down over the centuries, so much as uh, there are myths and we tell stories uh, of these ancient times, and we've had differing understandings of exactly what people were doing, and uh, once we get to the modern era where paganism really started, modern paganism really started, people looked back at those stories, at those practices, usually from um, starting from an academic or a scholarly standpoint, and uh, adapted them to, to modern practice, modern belief. Um, modern neopaganism, it, it really is uh, a 20th century religion. Uh, the roots are right. in the, the 1800s, and arguably as far back as the 1700s. However, uh, it does not have... Um, you, what modern pagans practice is not something that was, was practiced millennia ago. It's, it's their take on it. That being said, there are um, beliefs in magic, and magical practices are part of most modern pagan traditions. And by definition, some of those practices are identified by others as occult. Again, because it's, it's a secret tradition. It's stuff that... Uh, not everybody understands, and it's stuff that is not necessarily part of what the rest of society accepts as mainstream religion, which, you know, for most people, mainstream religion begins and ends with uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Maybe with a nod to Buddhism and uh, the Asian traditions, but, uh, you know, for folks here in the Western world, those get pretty esoteric. Uh, and the line between um, magic and religion and philosophy and spirituality in Asian religions are quite different, um, much hazier than they are when we're talking about the, the mainstream religions inspired by the Bible and the biblical tradition. So in, in, the, Eastern, yeah, in the Eastern tradition, it's, a lot of that stuff is not hidden. Um, it's, not, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty in the mainstream, like Hinduism and Buddhism. A lot of the practices that we would identify here in the West as, as magic, and, and therefore something that many people would identify as a cult, go hand in hand with a great deal of the, the standard practices. So uh, take, uh, for instance, Hinduism, where yoga, we practice yoga here in the West and we've kind of like sanitized it by, by removing it from the, the root religious belief, uh, from whence it comes. But it's, it's a mystical practice. It's a spiritual practice uh, where you become aware of the, the prana, the life force that moves through your body, your ability to manipulate it, uh, your ability to harness it so that your body can do things um, beyond uh, what is normally accepted as, as you know, a, a human limitation. Uh, and there were, especially in like the, the 1800s, as uh, you know, folks from the West were starting to uh, explore and discover these practices, uh, we saw them as uh, almost like wizards, the, the kind of stuff that they could do through this practice. And so it seems very magical from our perspective, uh, but it's just how things were. It's how that religion um, approaches body, mind, and spirit. 
Now, when you when you say the word magic, and I know this is probably a question that you get a lot, uh, the differentiation between magic with a K and the magic of like a of like a magician a showman magician does. Yeah, I know Luke knows the answer to this question, but what's kind of the what's kind of the difference between those that those what's the the definitions of the of the of magic with a K as opposed to you know, magic with a C. Magic just with a C is is prestidigitation and sleight of hand. Magic that is um, established through nothing supernatural or paranormal or psychic. It is pretty much smoke and mirrors. And it would be the magic of Harry Houdini, um, the, the magic of David Copperfield, and the magic of Chris Angel. Yeah. So there's nothing... And, and, and they do not claim that there is anything supernatural or extraordinary going on. They are using their ability to misdirect, to make it seem like they are casting illusions and, and doing amazing things that are uh, magic with a K. And uh, Alistair Crowley was the fellow who really instituted this usage to differentiate the, the practice of exerting human will, either on the, the self, the body, or on the world around the person, in order to enact significant changes which anybody else is going to identify as, as supernatural or paranormal in, in nature. Um, something that seems to be above and beyond uh, the, the ability we would ordinarily attribute to someone in, in a purely material way. So um, when a pagan practices magic with a K, uh, they may ask for... Um, Say, say they cast a prosperity spell. And it's interesting, as I'll explain this for any um, anybody in the audience who happens to be of a, a more religious bent, like a Christian bent, it's going to sound like the pagan is praying. Uh, light a candle, decide what your intent is, uh, go through sometimes just writing out your intent. You, you express it with words, with actions, with symbols, in order to focus your will and then try to bring about a change in the world. Uh, which is possibly, uh, you know, a break in a job interview that just, you know, happens to come your way the next day after you cast the spell. Uh, for a Christian, it's prayer, and God is the one who's answering that. Uh, for a pagan or anybody else who practices magic with a K, uh, it doesn't negate their belief in a higher power, but magic is when you are doing it yourself. Your will your power, your ability to bring these changes in the world, and that is magic. Uh, you'd mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, old pagan traditions and new pagan traditions and the difference between them. Uh, how do they practice different today versus pre-1700s? Well, pre-1700s, there, there used to be, um, actually there was a very big debate, scholarly-wise, of whether or not these things were actually handed down, like, you know, from, from mother to daughter or father to son, from, from the ancient ways, the old ways. Uh, very, very early paganism, um, not, moder not the modern practice, but what you might have found uh, practiced in small villages, uh, in, in pre-Christian or even early Christian Europe uh, is very tied to, to nature, um, to the seasons. Uh, it is very tied to uh, the harvest. 
as well as to finding ways in the natural world to harness um, uh, the, the powers that be, uh, to harness the powers of the plants or the rocks, the roots, um, and the natural forces, and to channel those into change, healing, health, uh, fertility, and, and ways of trying to, um, to, to benefit uh, yourself or your community. Now, there are so many different um, pantheons and names of gods and goddesses uh, based on each time and each region that it would take us an entire right. radio show. Several of them, right, all of right, them. Right. Um, but the main thing, and it's, it is and it is not different, the main thing is that connection to earthly powers that are more than just dust and dirt and an inherent knowing on the part of the practitioner, which in, in um, you know, in Middle Ages Europe might have been called a witch or a cunning woman or a cunning man. In other cultures might have been called a medicine man and in other cultures might be a shaman. Um, but someone who can speak to the spirits and who can speak to the power in things and find a way to, to harness that to affect those changes. Now, we've over time, practices were lost or suppressed. As Christianity particularly spread through Europe, in, in the Western world, a lot of these practices either were actively rooted out um, or they became something that was married with the Christian expression. Uh, we don't necessarily think of that so much in uh, the traditions that might have been passed down to us by say, you know, our, our Eastern European grandmothers or our Irish grandmothers and grandfathers. Uh, but we really get to see how a, a native tradition that has strong magical and very pagan elements can get married to uh, a Christian tradition. If you look at voodoo, uh, Kondomble, uh, Santeria, um, any of the, the African diaspora religions, where in, in voodoo, it is their the Loas, which for folks who are not into voodoo, I can best... A down and dirty definition of the Loas are ancestor spirits with a vengeance, with an attitude. Um, they're, they're sassy, they're very present in the world, they're still very human in a lot of their, their ways of dealing with people, but they're also, um, they're also superpowered. They have the ability to affect these changes and you deal with them yeah. to, to help you uh, bring things in. And in voodoo, they connect them, they uh, syncretize them with Catholic saints. And so if you walked in on um, a voodoo altar and you didn't know the other little signs of what you were looking at, it could pass for a Catholic altar to a particular saint. So that it wouldn't be uh, routed out. So, you know, people wouldn't be burned or punished for practicing something that wasn't strictly Christian. Yes. Ah. That went on a lot uh, from the time that the Catholic Church took over till even till today that a lot of the, they just they just really absorbed because they would baptize people in, on mass and they just absorbed a lot of those, those beliefs into Catholicism. Well, it's why um, it's why Irish Catholics have a particular flavor to them, and there's particular saints that are, are very specific to that tradition. Um, saint Saint Bridget or Breed uh, 
There's a great story that explains why she's really a saint, but she was just an Irish goddess, and they weren't willing to give her up. And so she became the, the wet nurse to Jesus. And she's not technically... Uh, she, she is a saint, but she was a goddess first. And it's, it's a, she's a really good example for how you have a, a pagan tradition that survives in Christianity um, and has, has survived so well that people don't necessarily even know that there is a pagan goddess underneath, underneath St. Bridget's veil. Right. Or even the Virgin Mary herself is, has some... Uh, it's kind of a cover for different goddesses of the ancient Near East. Sophia being um, uh, the, the Gnostics, I, I definitely see a lot of the iconography with, with Mary getting married to um, Sophia, who was a goddess of wisdom and in some traditions the wife of God. Uh, basically, the, the idea that you've got this, this very, very masculine patriarchal deity and he doesn't have a counterpart, he doesn't have a, a female counterpart. Uh, Mary, for many people, answers the need for, uh, an, for, for a goddess in the Christian tradition, especially in the Catholic tradition. Right. I mean, the, the very pagan elements of Catholicism are at the foundation of the split between Catholicism and Protestantism. The saints, all the, icon, all the iconography, um, all the, the many high holy days, the, the very magical aspect of the ritual in the Mass... Uh, transubstantiation of wine and bread into blood and flesh. One of the one of the uh, two things that the occult is often, I think, confused with is New Age and Satanism. And Satanism, definitely, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. What's kind of the difference between New Age? In the occult. Uh, but uh, before before she answers that, real quick, that's her. That that would be my difference. Um, where I was talking about the pre-pagan practice versus nowadays pagan practice is the introduction of the new age stuff, and of course, like the dark ages, like she was talking about, Christianity come through, changed everything. But you know, so that for me was the difference between what's practiced now and then was older kind of the, versus new. The introduction of these new yeah. age. Uh, traditions with the pagan traditions. Well, yeah, because modern paganism is a very self-aware religion. It's a very self-aware practice. It uh, it borrows from everything it can get its hands on. So you'll see elements now in modern pagan practice of, of Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, of a lot of uh, you know more modern New Age uh, ideas that have been developed in the past hundred or two hundred years. Right. Um, the the difference between Occult and pagan, and occult and New Age, and occult and Satanism, sometimes is purely in the eye of the person defining what is occult, and that, that's the hard part. Is since we've got this word that is a big blanket term for everything that is hidden, or dark, or mysterious, uh, because it's so ambiguous, it's very easy to lump a lot of things in there. Now. If you're talking about the people who practice these things within their communities, they make sharp distinctions. Uh, New Agers do not necessarily like to be considered pagan. Pagans do not necessarily like to be considered New Agers. <laughs> and uh, neither New Agers nor pagans like to be considered Satanists. They, they have clear and sharp defining lines. Not all pagans 
uh, practice the type of magic that we often associate with the occult, which tends to be much more, um, the pagan magic is much more, more natural. It can be almost mistaken for prayer. Uh, and you know, if you line it up side by side, it often involves gods and goddesses. Uh, it often involves uh, pretty much the same steps that a Christian will go through to pray lighting candles, uh, saying um, intentions, invoking higher powers, uh, when, whereas not all occult practices that would be, di- would be identified as magic will necessarily have anything to do with a god or goddess or a religious tradition. It's more about harnessing the power that comes from within a person, either through ceremony, uh, through incantation, um, through, through symbols, or, or simply by sitting and willing it to be. And, and sometimes it really depends on the traffics. Um, now, again, it would take probably scores and scores of, of podcasts to <laughs> talk about the, the finer points. But New Age is, first, a, a movement toward... Uh, more a personal spirituality as opposed to an organized religion. And in some respects, it is a a reaction against organized religion. Uh, While they don't necessarily all realize it, uh, New Agers have a lot in common with with old Christian Gnostics, who uh, the Gospel of Thomas was was a big part of the Gnostic tradition, uh, where rather than going to a church to find God, you would find God within. You would find your own path. And you would, rather than have a priest tell you how to practice, you would seek practice yourself. You would seek the truth yourself. Now, on top of that, the the New Age practices have gotten, uh, I I don't want to say muddled, but they have added in ideas of uh, a grand awakening, the age of Aquarius. Uh, There's a fair amount of, of psychic awakening, um, psychic practices that are a part of the New Age tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, crystal New magic. Not, yeah, New Agers would not identify what they do as magic, whereas a pagan is comfortable with that term. Although if you kind of like peel it back and really look at what they're doing, they're all doing the same darn thing. Right, kind of like Prime. It's also huh? like, it's so hard to define any of it. <laughs> and then... To, to make it even harder, um, there's there's theistic Satanism, which may or may not be real. And theistic Satanism is supposedly those people who believe in Satan, Lucifer, the devil, as a real, powerful entity who, by nature, uh, is the antithesis of God. Right. And theistic Satanists, in theory, worship that figure with the intent of working against all that God and God's traditional religions represent. These are all now, the death metal bands that Luke listens to. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I have a hard time thinking of anybody who would seriously want to pitch for uh, what ultimately is a losing team, because to, to be a theistic Satanist, you have to essentially buy into Christianity first. <laughs> it's, that's funny, right? Up it's true. It. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God is real, Christ is real, and you totally just want to undermine all of that. And, and that is that is theistic Satanism. A bunch of crybabies who just <laughs> saying that they say trying to show everyone how much they hate it. 
I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it's done to, done for shock. Yeah. Really. See, that, that's the thing. Is that's why I'm kind of skeptical because every time I have been pointed in the direction of someone who either thinks that there's like actual Satanism going on over in this place. Uh, it turns out to be like you know some 15, 16 year olds who uh, watched too many bad B movies or were listening to too many heavy metal things and really are making a show of it. They don't necessarily even really believe in what they're doing. They're just right. kind of trying to piss off mom and dad. Yeah, that's kind of now, the uh, oh. There, there's a difference between that and Levian Satanism. Um, the the Church of Satan is founded by Anton Xander Levay which actually at its core is more atheistic than it is anything else. Levian Satanism is more a philosophy of you get one shot, you're here, the physical world is what re- what is real, and your purpose is to make yourself happy. And you're not going to fulfill that purpose by bowing to anybody else's dogma or uh, being afraid of some big old guy with a beard and a bathrobe sitting on a cloud. And, and that is sort of Levian Satanism in a silly nutshell. Yeah, it still, it still didn't keep Anton Levay from hamming it up on Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. <but>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this. I, yeah, I would just think of him as just hedonist. You know, just don't, whatever they're feeling at the moment right. is just what they do, no matter who it affects around them. Right. Uh, so, Michelle, as you're um, in your field as an occultist, and then as a paranormal investigator, as a psychic medium, how do you use what you've learned from the occult in that field? Uh, Well, when you're doing an investigation of a haunting, oftentimes the occult is an important element. Because either the family has run into something that they they think is weird, like, uh, and and it often turns out to be something that doesn't mean anything at all in the end or is not as scary as they think it is. So, okay, family moves into a house, they start having phenomenon, and they hear from the neighbors that the people who lived there three, three families ago were really weird and there was occult stuff going on in the house. And they, they make the association then that maybe those people who were practicing occult whatever it was are the ones that got the house haunted in the first place. Sure. Uh, and my role is to then assess, okay, so what was this occult thing that these weird people were supposedly doing? Now, as someone who has studied, uh, again, occultism being a huge blanket for everything that is that stuff we don't understand. I mean, really, if I, if I had to define the occult right now, that's, that's what it comes down to. It's not mainstream religion, and it doesn't look like what we're used to, so it must be occult. <laughs> so I assess... What were the people practicing? Um, are there symbols? Uh, are there uh, ritual tools? If I can track down what it was they were practicing, or if they were like those, you know, 17-year-old kids who were just kind of putting on a show to piss off mom and dad, uh, you, you can get a better handle on, you know, is this an element of the haunting? Because there are magical practices, there are rituals, there are traditions that allow you to summon spirits, to work with spirits, even to bind them um, to places and to objects, sometimes harmlessly and sometimes with the intent of causing chaos and harm. But there are so many different traditions and so many different ways to doing it, uh, it requires a fairly encyclopedic knowledge to identify it, as well as the willingness to acknowledge that 
the traditions meaning uh, a lot of that has to do with what the person practicing it thought those symbols meant um, a good example would be there's a book out there called the Necronomicon the truth about the Necronomicon is it was dreamed up by a very creative author H.P. Lovecraft yeah. and created from whole cloth that didn't exist before but there are several things that have been peddled as the Necronomicon since because he created such a great mystique around this, this forbidden book of black magic however if you believe hard enough in anything, the very nature of magic being uh, harnessing human will through actions and words and symbols to create an effect in the world, if you really, really believe that that copy of the Necronomicon that you found in your grandfather's basement is an actual book of black magic, if you use it with enough intent, you can stir stuff up. Some spirits will be more than happy to let you call them Cthulhu uh, if, it, you know, if, if that's what rocks your boat. As long as you're giving them attention, they'll come stand up and go, rawr, and sometimes linger in a place. So a lot of my occult knowledge is assessing what went on, what really went on. Yeah. Was it something that had an effect to, to the haunting, to what the family is experiencing, or is it just urban legend? Is it just rumor? Is it just uh, neighbors who were looking at perfectly harmless uh, pagan rituals or, or perfectly harm, harmless, uh, heck, sometimes it's even Catholic rituals. Uh, I, I worked at a hotel where the, uh, the staff completely wigged out because we had some migrant workers who were Mexican, yeah. and they walked into the room that they were staying in, and there were these candles and this weird stuff, and they didn't know what the heck was going on, so they brought... They brought it up to me, and the poor fellow was doing a novena, um, a, a nine-day prayer cycle that you do with a special type of candle, and it's it's perfectly Catholic tradition. It's uh, part of that you know um, bit where in, in in Mexican Catholicism there's a little bit of, of magic and paganism that leaked in too, but it wasn't in the eyes of the practitioner magical, weird, occult, or anything beyond part of his actual faith. Right. So. I assess. It's good that you're there to dispel some ignorance. Yeah. Um, but the, the 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 16 or 17 year old kids that are out there trying to piss mom and dad off, they could actually could they actually do a ritual and actually bring something through accidentally? It is possible. Yes. And and that's where it gets tricky uh, because magic is about channeling human will. Everybody has the power to, to enact change. Everybody can draw things and invite things in if, if they're focused enough. And if you get somebody, I mean, nine times out of ten, the kids who are, like, trying to pretty much, you know, horse around aren't going to cause any harm beyond they leave stuff behind that scares people because they don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. And then every once in a while you have somebody who's got some latent ability. Uh, and, you know, they might be dabbling with this stuff because they, they don't have any other way of expressing it. It might be purely accidental. They might just have the bad fortune of doing their, their little silly horseplay in a location that has that is very rich with potential activity. Um, and it will vary from thing to thing and situation to situation. It's why it's so hard um, when I get, like, email or other type of contacts, like on Facebook, and people want me to assess their haunting without being <laughs> there. There's so many little details 
that have to be studied because each case is absolutely different. But the bottom line is, yes, sometimes people can do it accidentally. Sure. You know i got uh, plenty of questions for you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk. As you can tell, I, 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 will, I will talk your ear off about this topic. Um, my, my only rule is there's, for so much of this, there's no easy answer. I mean, if yeah. there was a, a big book that could define to you exactly what the occult is and like outline every single knowable occult tradition, that would be amazing. I would own that book uh, instead of a, a library with 3,000 books and counting. <laughs> Well, Luke's reading this tome right now. Tell her. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to read the uh, complete works of the Golden Dawn right now and the three books of the Gold Philosophy, and man, it's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's intense stuff, and all of their work contributed to uh, you know modern 20th century and 21st century practice. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's difficult with any any of these occult traditions is they are constantly evolving uh, because each new each new generation, each new culture, uh, each new belief system that gets added into it uh, adds adds little pieces and takes little pieces away. So it, it's it's this very ever changing conglomeration. Yeah. Well, we're we're at the root of it is humans change things with language and symbol and will and ritual helps to focus. Right. I think that that's probably the biggest blanket I can state about like occult tradition. And then the actual symbols that are used, the words that are used, uh, and the rituals that are used will vary right. over time and over culture, as uh, well as from individual to individual. Uh, so what I wanted to ask you about is uh, necromancy. It, it, uh, it lists it in the book a couple times, it just mentions it, but it never goes into any kind of actual practice. And okay, so so you're talking about uh, the, the the magical practice of working with the dead, and, uh, uh, more specifically uh, using either dead animals or people, animals preferably to to scry with. Okay, necromancy is from necro and mantia. Necro for the dead, mantia for divination. Um, these days, when you hear necromancy, like, and it's like portrayed in, in TV or movies, it's like resurrecting the dead, and it might lead to zombies and, and vampires and God knows what. Uh, now, that's the, the fictional portrayal of it, but the root of it was was a divination technique uh, with the dead. So, in um, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy, there's like about a paragraph about necromancy, where he talks about certain practices of necromancy that use the physical pieces of the dead, sometimes whole bodies, in order to either draw spirits into the corpse to then um, act as an oracle to, to speak about things. This was founded on the, the old belief that um, actually kind of lays at the heart of modern spiritualism, that when someone dies, when their spirit crosses over... Uh, they become privy to a, a level of understanding the world and the universe that we don't necessarily have when we are um, just just in our life. That that the dead, that the spirits of the dead, after going through a certain transformation, uh, that they get it. <laughs> they know more than we know. And uh, exactly how much spirits of the dead know and understand and are privy to varies culture to culture and time to time. But it was believed that 
they were able to see more than we could as, as living beings, and so they were sought out. Uh, some of that goes back to um, the, the ancient Greeks would practice something called dream incubation, where they would seek the spirits of the dead, uh, as well as gods, as well as demigods, in the realm of dream uh, to answer questions for them. Uh, and that type of necromancy, uh, which I believe Agrippa calls white necromancy, hmm. uh, we only dealt with the spirits and not with the physical parts of the dead. Now, of course, when we're talking about, you know, that, that class of people who like really ooky, ooky spooky stuff, and you go, oh my goodness, you can do rituals that involve corpses and bones and stuff? How cool is that? <laughs> but for that class of people, um, there definitely are some, some books over the years that I think might have been written in the... Uh, well, honestly, in, in the spirit of let's piss off mom and dad and seem really scary, because there's there's one, the, the Red Dragon Grimoire, I think, comes to mind. And if I'm if I'm remember remembering the ritual that I read correctly, it requires you to go and mind you, at, at uh on Christmas Eve, I believe, you're supposed to break into a cemetery, dig up a corpse with your bare hands. Um, and then go throw the bones at the altar at the midnight mass. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up. This, this exists in a book. Uh, <laughs> sounds, you know, like, sounds like a good time. Well, but if you think about it, there couldn't be anybody who had actually performed this ritual, whether it worked or had any founding in anything beyond how ridiculous or how scary or how offensive can I write this thing to be. Right. At the dead of winter... Anywhere in Western Europe, please show me how anybody is going to dig a grave up with their bare hands. <laughs> Six feet down, from, from the time the sun goes down till midnight mass, to get bones of some corpse to go toss in a church. <laughs> uh, well, what so, a, what? so unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of confusion of, of necromantic works that do exist. Like, if you can find, um, you know, necromantic rituals, it's, it's one of those things that really qualifies as, like, difficult because the practice is so hidden and so ooky-spooky that if you find something, chances are it's written by someone who never had any actual knowledge of the real practice. Right. Um, Lucan, um, a, a, a Roman writer, he gave us probably the most of what we understand about how necromancy in the ancient world might have possibly been practiced, but at the same time he's writing fiction. So uh, what uh, the type of necromancer that uh, Agrippa might have been aware of is, is his witch, Lucan's witch Erectho, who resurrects uh, a dead soldier on the battlefield to, to have him prognosticate, to have him... Uh, basically to, to talk to his spirit. And she goes through all of this, you know, great grand rigmarole. And while it is written by Lucan as fiction, that styling of, of that particular ritual becomes something that people in, um, in, in Europe then look to, assuming that that's how it was practiced. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The difficult thing is, is you you actually see uh, more accurate necromancy in um, the Odyssey. Again, it's a work of fiction by Homer, and this is this is Greek as opposed to Roman. But Odysseus 
sits down and summons the spirits of the dead uh, from Hades to ask some some very important questions of, of one of them. And Homer probably did a very good job of describing this particular ritual. He didn't need... Uh, Odysseus doesn't need the, the bones of the dead. He just needs their names. And he makes offerings. And the, the final offering is of blood uh, because the life is what the dead crave. Uh, but the other offerings that he, he creates, this little trench around his little work area, are offerings that were traditionally given to the dead in religious ceremonies. And, and this is where you see that weird line between religion and the occult. Because, you know, from, from our perspective, when we see this ritual that Odysseus engages in to summon the souls of the dead, he's not a priest. He's not doing this as part of a religious ceremony. He's doing this for his personal gain. Um, and it's, it's a very chilling passage in the Odyssey. But at the same time, the, the ritual that he uses is a priestly ritual. It is a religious ritual that would have involved offerings given to the spirits of the dead to honor them, to, to help them on, on their, their passage. Uh, so I think if I had to, and I'm, I've gone far afield and right back to the what is the occult, if I had to give you uh, the best definition of what we understand as occult practice now, it's when it's when the role and the power of, of a priest or uh, a religious ritual is taken into the hands of, of a layperson, a regular practitioner, and is used for, um, if not necessarily personal gain, then, then personal uh, direction, taken outside of religion and still practiced. I'd like to ask you, because um, you had mentioned something, you're talking about the ritual where you have to dig in the ground and that it's kind of, uh, in a way, it's kind of like a, like almost like that person is trolling in a way. Uh, there are a number <laughs> of things with definitely people trolling, um, and it's, it's actually it's really important to understand um, Satanism and uh, occultism and all of these things became really like almost fashionable, uh, especially in France in uh, the 1700s toward the turn of uh, the century, and so you will find. And it was something that people would play around with. Uh, ben Franklin was part of the Hellfire Club, which yeah. we still can't be sure whether or not it was an actual occult organization or if it was an organization of people who were just having fun with people and basically trolling them uh, by making it seem like you know there was crazy stuff going on when all they were doing were buggering servant girls down in the caves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, what I was going to ask about, and uh, one that... Um, Aleister Crowley seemed like a lot of stuff that he did was not entirely serious. I, like he seemed to be the king of the trolls in a way. Well, he he, he is a very complicated person because on one True. hand, he really, really understood what he was doing with magic. On the other hand, I think he figured out that nobody got it or at least very few people got it, and most people were going to always look at him as a charlatan um, or a fool, and so he might as well just drop his drawers and moon everybody. <laughs> 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 and, 
and so he he mixes uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tomfoolery, a lot of flamboyant. I, I don't want to say fakery, but he really would play up the role of the great beast to the people who would mistake his magic for magic with a C as opposed to magic with a K. Yeah. As a way to, and I think um, Jack Parsons did that as well. Or brought him up, Jack Parsons, or, or possibly even just a way to misdirect people that don't yeah. have the the uh, perseverance that's required to to study his works. I think that there's a little bit of that too. Um, actually, if you get into some of the some of the OTO um, stuff that uh, that that Crowley wrote, he's challenging you to look beyond uh, the superficial language and that's 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 an old old tradition um, alchemy is probably the one that's most notorious for it where you have all this really complicated crazy flowery language and symbolism and you know the the, the red and the black and the Union of opposites and the marriage of the the sun and the lion eating the the lady and just just there's all these crazy images that make no sense at all unless you know what they each represent and so you kind of have to be initiated uh, and and educated in the system to to read between the lines and if you're not it just looks like a whole bunch of gobbledygook or a bunch of just you know ridiculous nonsense at, at which point you go why would anybody ever believe in or practice this right when you know a lot of the alchemical stuff that they're that they're talking about that they have uh, put into the metaphors of you know things devouring other things and hermaphrodites giving birth to things are are chemical reactions between you know, and, and they're very real chemical reactions. So alchemy gave rise to modern chemistry. I believe, too, that it gave rise in many ways to Freemasonry. Um, do you consider Freemasonry kind of an occult organization? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, well, the Freemasons <laughs> wouldn't consider themselves a cult, I don't think. However, yes, uh, there's, there's a lot. There is an element of ritual and the esoteric. There's definitely a, a hidden element to, to their practices. Now, the Freemasons themselves uh, see ties to both the Templars as well as back to the Temple of Solomon. Um, and so they're part of the Solomonic tradition. Now, I don't know uh, any Freemason well enough to pick their brain and find out whether or not at the higher levels of initiation they don't play around with um, you know Solomonic magic, which is at the core of, of ceremonial magic in, in Western Europe. Uh, that kind of stuff that deals with the Goetia and you know summoning and binding demons. I mean, most people don't know that you know, biblical King Solomon, who was you know, the wisest man, has this whole tradition around him that in, uh, in Arabic countries is tied to the jinn, to genies, uh, and in Western Europe became tied to, to demons, where Solomon had the ability to uh, compel and bind these spirits. And in the Testament of Solomon, he uses them to help him build the temple. So, so the great sacred temple was, was built not merely through, by, by human hands, but by all of these, these spirits that he was able to control because God had given him the power to do so and had given him a special ring uh, that they would have to bow before. Speaking of that, about demons, um, and I believe this kind of goes into it, what was your kind of purpose in writing the Dictionary of Demons? 
the, the very core purpose, the, the first uh, flash of inspiration actually came from a conversation between me and Father Bob. Uh, we were between cases, and uh, we were sitting in the lobby of the hotel. It was after the part where, like, I'd, I'd already come in and do, done my psychic thing so I could actually talk to people because... If I was the psychic on the case, I pretty much had to like hide from everybody, talk to no one, and then go blindfolded in the case so I didn't taint anything. So we're, sure. we're hanging around, and I think we started talking about the Malleus Maleficarum. And uh, Father Bob had asked to borrow some of the stuff that I have in my library because he didn't have ready access to some of it. And then I found out that um, my, my Latin um, might be a little bit better than, than Father Bob's was at the time. So, uh, And also, he didn't have access to... Uh, things like uh, the, the Testament of Solomon uh, or the Lamegaton and, and the various grimoires from the Solomonic tradition, the Pseudomonarchia Demonum. And I started rattling off all of these things, and his eyes got bigger and bigger. He's like, what, what, what are these books? And like, they're, they're from the ceremonial tradition um, in, in Europe, probably well, mainly between like the 12th and the 17th centuries, and most of them deal with demons. And there are names and names and names. And if you're familiar with uh, the Roman ritual and with traditional Catholic exorcism, the, the name of the demon is fairly important. That goes back to biblical tradition. And actually, the biblical tradition goes all the way back to the Sumerian and Babylonian tradition, where the name not only summons the spirit, but also gives you the power to command and compel and bind it. So working from that idea that names have power, and that the names of demons allow one to banish and exercise them, uh, I started to pour through all of the the texts that I could get my hands on that I knew to look for and identified every spirit that within those texts were either called demons, evil spirits, or fallen angels. Anything that didn't fall under that, I I cut out because otherwise I would have had to write, like, five volumes. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous number of things, and I just... I got yeah. all their proper names and I put them together in one place. Now it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be complete without also getting uh, the names of demons that are traditionally uh, identified as demons within uh, the Bible and the biblical tradition and things connected with it, as well as sort of like looking at how some of those have come to be seen as demons because not all of them started off as demons within the cultures that originally worshipped them as gods, like. Uh, Baal, B-A-A-L, uh, sometimes spelled B-A-E-L, Baal, didn't start off as a uh, as a demon. He was a god worshipped by people who were uh, um, antagonistic with, with the ancient Israelites. And so um, the god of the Bible was a rival to, to Baal, or Baal was a rival to the god of the Bible, and therefore any god that was worshipped by a group of people uh, who were warring with or struggling against the Israelites, who had a different religion, their gods automatically got turned into demons. Um, and so all of those are also in the Dictionary of Demons, as well as sort of like the little the little history of like how that name came about, how they came to be seen as, as demons, as well as fallen angels, um, not all of whom necessarily were cast from heaven, at least not according to the texts. There's the Watcher Angels, who, uh, depending on the source material, either ended up here on Earth uh, as kind of a, a a bargain with God, where they were like, hey, humans are screwing things up on your little planet, let's 
let us go down and fix it for you, Dad. And, and God says, you're, you're going to get messed up if you go down there. And the angels say, no, no, we can handle it. And he lets them go. Mind you, they're not cast out. But the, right. the very nature of being here is what corrupts them. Uh, or they just chose to walk out of heaven because they just wanted to be here more. Um, so all of those different spirits and, and their stories, which are really what's important to me. And then the, the final part about the dictionary is I wanted to stick to the scholarship, um, the academic approach to, to the stories, the myths, and the beliefs around these things, rather than the theological implication of, you know, are they real? Are they not real? Are they fallen? What does that mean? That I leave up to people of different religious traditions because that is not my territory. I just looked through books and reported what was in the books. So you don't have like any like overarching belief onto what demons are. Just more, maybe more of a. You look um, at it kind of a more of a scholarly way. Well, I, I have my belief, but when when you're talking um, a tradition that is so hotly debated and can be such a, a knee jerk button for for some people, right. I felt that my personal beliefs about these things need to be kept separate. From, from just the, the scholarship of here is the tradition of demons in the Western world. Now, my, well, there's my interpretive belief, and then there's stuff that I've gotten to see in the field. And I have to say, my, my interpretive belief is informed by my scholarship. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily believe in, um, you know, the straight up idea of, of Christian demons, that they're, uh, that they are all fallen angels, that there's you know this grand struggle for people's soul between heaven and hell. It's not quite like that. I accept that people call spirits that are intelligent, malevolent, non-human in origin, and very antagonistic toward humanity. Like, they, they need to have those qualities for me to identify them as demons. Okay. What they really are in the grand scheme of things, I try not to debate, but I have encountered things that it's it's wicked smart. It doesn't seem like it was ever human, um, and it has a very inhuman, kind of alien quality to its intelligence. It does not have a, a sense of good and evil like we do, and in fact, actually, it's it's fairly malevolent by nature, and it really just seems to delight in messing with regular people, with living people. Um, and when it fits those four criteria, I'm like, well, every other culture has recognized weird stuff like this too, and the best word we have for it is demon. Whether or not that means it crawled out of hell or some trans-dimensional rift, I don't care. <laughs> At the end of the day, what I really want to do, if I'm on a case, is to get it to leave people alone. Right. Um, I, I got one for you about the Kabbalah. Okay. Um, so there's there's this whole story I think from the Zora about the uh, the origin of the original Arabic language, like the pure Arabic language, and uh, the what twenty two letters. And I was I'm wondering where the numerical values came from that were assigned the letters. I do not know where the numbers came from. I just know that each letter is a number. 
and the the numerical value of the letters informs the it's first of all it's the basis of our idea of western numerology um, and it's also the basis of uh, a tradition called gematria where in especially like the old testament or what you know what what christians call the old testament um, each of those words every single word is is almost a code as well uh, the idea that the beast that the devil or you know whatever has a number and um, although 666 apparently is not the accurate one um, that meaningfulness of numbers is very tied in with that language it is possible and this is pure conjecture on my part um, the very roots of language as it is understood now uh, at least in the west ties to Sumer uh, again a lot of things um, on our side of the planet seem to go back to Sumer Babylon and Akkad the cradle of civilization it's where we recognize um, it's where scholars recognize as, as like the start of agriculture the start of organized religion it's pretty much for, for what we understand of, of our our core culture it, it all ties back to that, that place and let me say that uh, that place is modern day Iraq hotly debated location. Yes. Language started there as a way of counting. Uh, first, people would just make little hash marks, um, little little symbols, little impressions in clay to count the stuff that they had, to count their sheep, to count their, uh, you know, their, 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 their grain, how many jars of, of whatever thing that they had. And as they started to get like larger numbers, they would have more complicated symbols to rec- to to um, represent ten and sixty and three sixty and, and such like that. And then, when this actually started first, as little tokens. So so actually, let me let me move back. So they had little tokens that represented the things that they would count, and the little tokens uh, eventually got stuck into so that they wouldn't lose them, like these almost like uh, little pies it's like little clay pockets mm. and they would stamp what was inside the clay pocket once they sealed it and they were done with the counting uh, and over time they realized that if they were marking the little symbols into the clay pocket to represent the items that were stored in the clay pocket that represented the things that they were counting well they might as well just do away with the little tokens and the clay pocket entirely have a flat piece of clay and just use the symbols, just use the, the impression of the, the token that counted 1, 10, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And that became language. Eventually it turned into language. So counting in language are, on a certain level, almost inextricable. Uh, interestingly... Uh, and uh, this is one thing I got I got corrected on, and it was it was a good correction. It, it's a correction to to keep in mind. The Kabbalah, a fundamental part of the Kabbalah is the Tree of Life, and it has um, these these Sephira mm-hmm. in it. And I had been told, and uh, the Golden Dawn tradition defines the Sephira as um, as, as jewels, and Oh, I believe it was Israel Regardi's stuff, Jewels on the Tree, uh, where he connected the word Sephiro, Sephiroth with um, sapphire. When actually the root word is counting, is numbers. 
uh, which I find very significant to the to the topic. Um, so, symbol and number, uh, letter and number. Mm-hmm. I don't know where reasonably uh, those connections were made, but those connections run very, very deep in the Western tradition. And the meanings assigned to those numbers uh, are something that you will find at the core of many magical uh, and occult traditions. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Do you think you wanted to ask? Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to ask you the time that we got remaining, uh, Michelle. Uh... I've heard you describe yourself as a psychic vampire, or the yep. concept of psychic vampirism. Can you kind of go over what exactly that is? Down and dirty definition, a psychic vampire is a person who needs to regularly and actively take human vital energy in order to maintain their own um, health and well-being. Uh, simply put, everybody is, by my perception... Uh, a being of both body and, and spirit, body and energy. Uh, and we can measure the, 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 this thing that we call energy. I'm using air quotes. You just can't see me using air quotes. Uh, we measure that with things like galvanic skin response, uh, biophotons. There, there's so many different ways. E- e- EEGs and EKGs, uh, our bodies are run on electricity. So so think of that, that biological charge. Sure. Um, world religions call or world traditions call it you know, chi, prana, and it's all connected with breath, life, energy. So, first off, everybody has it. Everybody exchanges it with their environment as well as with one another to one extent or another. Every conversation, every time you kiss somebody, every time you have a meaningful interaction with someone, there is a connection and a flow of energy and power that comes from person to person. Uh, some people, performers, seem have an ability to, to harness that, like the, the ones that have like a really strong presence, strong charisma. Uh, we talk without really thinking about what it means when we encounter someone who has good energy or bad energy. Um, and it, it's part of our, our language, but we don't necessarily attribute anything weird to it. Well, a psychic vampire is someone who, for one reason or another, is tuned into this energy and also has a need, a natural inborn ability uh, to, to meet that need to take it from other people. There are an awful lot of psychic vampires who are not aware of what they're doing and probably will never be aware of what they're doing. Um, they're just not conscious of it. And they find the, the most efficient and oftentimes most obtrusive ways of, of getting what they need uh, you know, getting a, getting a strong emotional response from somebody, really like getting them to, uh, getting up in their face or kind of getting their sympathy. Uh, but anything that pulls their attention to you uh, is, is a pathway to start to connect their energy and take their energy. And everybody's got that one friend, relative, or really frenemy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Either you, you, when you interact with them, you feel drained when you're done. You feel like they've taken something from you. You can even kind of put your finger on exactly when they're doing it, um, and whether they realize it or not depends on whether or not you you know want to tolerate them or just get them the heck out of your life. True. Uh, modern vampire community, which is you know uh, on the Venn diagram of, of weird, it's over there with like the pagans and the New Agers and, and everything else. The modern vampire community has a number of people who identify as psychic vampires who are aware of what they are, what they can do, 
and and harness it like an energy worker harnesses, you know, Reiki, Qigong, or anything else like that. I know I've so, definitely had my fair share of energy vampires. What about you, Adam? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some people that I've met that I could definitely, uh, before I heard you even talk about that concept, that kind of, <laughs> you feel drained after you're with them. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's certain magical traditions and other traditions that teach people how to take that energy or how to harness it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, when, when I do um, energy work on someone, I mean, I, I am a Reiki 3. I learned Reiki in order to compare it to what I naturally could do and, and get a better ability, uh, language that other people would recognize so that I could explain, you know, what it was like for what I was doing. Because it's, it's kind of like Reiki in reverse, you know. I, I can do it through a touch. I can do it at a, at a distance, but I prefer to do it... Um, physically in person with a person who is who's willing who understands what i'm doing and can be an active participant because in that case it's not a negative experience it's an exchange um and it can be used the ability to to take energy from someone can be used for healing some people have too much energy some people don't have enough if you find a good balance with somebody uh it 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 is it is a beneficial and a mutually beneficial exchange it really ends up being a problem mainly if somebody's doing it to someone against their will, without their knowledge. It's an uninvited contact, um, and it often can have a very intrusive sensation if it's done against your will. I'm a little guilty of it, uh, my practicing something like that myself in the past. Maybe not so much anymore. I've kind of calmed down a little bit, but... <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't always ethical about it, especially when I was younger, and I... I, on one hand, knew what I was doing, but on the other hand, didn't completely believe it, and so I would kind of experiment, and just sort of, I, I didn't take it as seriously as I should have, yeah. and so I, I, I had my fair share of, of things that I should not have done, and I, I kind of learned, in retrospect, to take it seriously, and to to use it responsibly. Right. Anything that you want to ask, Luke, before we... Oh, I've got plenty more, but I guess it's about time to wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Michelle, I mean, you've been a great guest. This has been, like, really informative stuff. We, we've covered... I don't think we've even scraped the surface, like Luke no. says. He's got so many <laughs> other questions. But uh, I'm, I'm what are you... always happy to talk more. Absolutely. What are you working on now uh, that uh, you've got a few books out, but are you working on anything else that's uh, coming out soon? I, I'm working on two things. Uh, a lot of my fans uh, of my nonfiction have asked for a follow-up to Haunting Experiences, which is a collection of real ghost stories, pretty much my, my personal experiences over time, um, and in a few cases, stories that were told to me by family of encounters, uh, which try to tell a, a good, rousing ghost story that also happens to be true. Um, so I'm, I'm collecting stuff from the past, what, six to eight years, some of which is connected with my work with the Paranormal Research Society. Um, and I'm also working on a fiction series, which I am hoping that I will have very good news about soon, uh, because uh, in addition to, to all the, the nonfiction stuff and the study that I do, I, I like telling stories. I, I, love, I love myth, I love folklore, I love the different ways that we can uh, entertain one another at even as we learn about these things. Um, so hopefully there will be a little bit more news about that. And um, yeah, pretty much haunting experiences too. 
Um, my book series. Uh, I finished work on a tarot uh, a couple years ago, and um, just in a bit of a pretty good place with that. And also have been talking with Ryan and the gang about maybe getting back together with some more uh, TV work. Oh, okay. I'm not. I'm not thrilled. TV is. It, it's wonderful and it's terrible. Uh, yeah. It's not something that I set out to be involved in, uh, and I, I got on Paranormal State because I was friends with them, and as friends, they asked me to to do the work uh, in front of a camera that might I might not have done if it was just you know some random person asking me. Uh, but as friends, they they have asked again, and I don't think TV's done with me. I guess. Cool. Excellent. Um, Michelle, where can everybody get your books? Um. Well, uh, Amazon carries everything, and I've written more than I can list here easily. So if mm-hmm. you just go up onto Amazon and you put in my first and last name, you'll, you'll end up with five or six pages, because it's about two dozen books at this point. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I cool. write a lot. <laughs> um, you can look on my website, uh, that's michellebelanger.com, and the last name is B-E-L-A-N-G-E-R. If you Twitter, and I Twitter, uh, my Twitter is a little hard to find until you know my online handle, and that is Seth Anakim, S-E-T-H-A-N-I-K-E-E-M, Seth Anakim. And then I'm up on Facebook, and you know, all, all the regular social media, my first and last name. And I think these days, if you just Google Michelle and Vampire, I will probably come up. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Well, Michelle, stay on the line. We're going to close out this section, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. Okie doke. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, and it has been enriched and enhanced by its wonderful co-host who is now back on the scene that's right luke is luke is back everyone that's amazing Woo! i almost didn't come tonight i got so caught up in listening to shitty b-rate rap cds that i forgot all about it that sounds like an excellent use of your time oh like. yeah totally so how's everything been well other than fill everybody in on the in the conspiratorial world other than my uh, ankle being jacked up where you know this is the best season to skate and ride my bike and do things in nature but my ankle's been jacked up for the past like month so oh, wow. that's kind of uh put a, a definite halt on my life is it feeling any better yeah i, I don't walk like i have parkinson's as much anymore <laughs> so. hey, you used to make fun of the, the the guy you called a vulture yeah i was so. i was making fun of vulture guy for how he was walking around <laughs> hermitage on the, and now look at me you know <laughs> Well, it's great to have you back, man. What did you think of Michelle Ballinger? Uh, I wonder if she's single. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, she's she's awesome, man. Uh, she knows her stuff, and I know anybody that's read owns three thousand books can has a lot of answers to the questions that yeah, I have. I've got a lot of books, man, but I don't own that many. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, told you I could get a cultist on eventually. Right on. Yeah, I mean, my mom's got the same amount, but I don't think she's really read as much. <laughs> well, it's all like Zachariah Sitchin books. Well, stuff, she, right? she's got her new age section, but she also has like the good stuff too. That right. she'll only let me borrow one book at a time because she's it's like her little 
hoarding, like TLC hoarder's treasure well, that she doesn't want to let go. Sure. As as we were mentioned um, in the interview with Michelle, uh, you were reading this tome right now. You're reading about the Golden Dawn, mm-hmm. which I want to have you, you know, at some point we'll do a whole oh, show. You, you're going to have to. You and me. You wait till I'm no longer a neophyte. <laughs> I'm just like, is there anything that stands out to you that you've like learned from that? Yep. from that absolutely. Book? Uh, there, I'm learning so much. Like you know, at first, at first I read the book um, on just the Kabbalah and it explained the whole system of the Tree of Life and the Sephira and the past of the Sep- the Sephiroth and everything and yeah. what they mean, their numerical equivalents and uh, how math ties into the Kabbalah and, and uh, what the paths are for in everyday life and then. You've got this whole planetary influence and, and uh, celestial body influence chart that influences specific times of the day when you'll be at your most creative, or this is like she was talking about the best time to apply for a new job, or the best time to go try to find a lover. And all of this is carefully and very specifically laid out in like a magical system. Is there anything that you've tried in it? No, I'm, I'm not ready. I'm just simply not okay. ready. I, I need to read about. 10 to 12 more books and then you have to go through ritual dry run practices without a real weapon is what they call it in occultism or western occultism yeah. a, a weapon which would be a, a wand or your, your sword or whatever that you've uh, imbued you know with the energy for magical practice so right. yeah I hadn't, I hadn't made it there yet I get a lot to go okay well I mean you know the last couple of weeks we've had on uh, had on Mike and Hanks and on Paul Browning, a couple of guys that uh, you remember, Micah Hanks, because mm-hmm. he could. You probably would have been here for that one, but uh, if he'd been able to do it on a Sunday, but he's only able to do it on a Monday. Yeah, we're gonna try, actually try to uh, get on his show at some point. Okay. So I'm looking at some time in November to try to get on there and uh, you know advertise our show a little bit more. Right on. But a uh, little bit of a. Of an announcement to make. Uh, this actually will be our last show here in this, um, as I call it, studio, but it's actually a bedroom. Uh, because, uh, well, I will be moving out because I'm getting a divorce. So, to announce that to everyone, you know, Duke's known about it for a while. Yeah. So. Oh my God. But what? probably in about three weeks, we'll be. Uh, We'll be at the new, uh, I will call it the Hermitage Hills studio. (laughs) (laughs) He'll be in his bro cave, more like. Yeah, my bro cave. His bro command station. (laughs) Bro command station. There's going to be old vinyls laying everywhere and craft beer, empty craft beer bottles and old vinyls laying everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like like a total hipster, I'll just have a bunch of PBR bottles and listen to my vinyl. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's about it, man. I think we can call it a night. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll be back in about three weeks or so to grace you with our presence. I uh, don't know <laughs> if we're going to have a guest. We may or may not. I'm going to have to get on to that. But, uh, we're going to have to uh, um, use the Kabbalistic system, man, to get more listens on our show. That's true. Yeah, we should do. You should do some magical intentions for us, buddy. <laughs> Try to get that done for us. So, uh, just want to thank everybody for listening to Conspiracy Normal. And, uh, Luke, why don't you just, uh, take us out? Oh, oh, yeah! Yeah, do
takhle táboři, škodou sto na Oravu, spěchám proto riskuji, projíždím přes Moravu, řádí tamto strašidlo, vystupuje z bážin, šere hlavně pražáky, jmenuje se Jožin, Jožin z bážin, močálem se blíží, Jožin z bážin, k vesnici se blíží, Jožin z bážin, už si zuby brousí, Jožin z bážin, kouše sa jerdousí, na Jožina z bážin, koho by to napadlo, platí jen a pouze práškovací letadlo. Projížděl jsem dědinou, cestou na Vizovice, přivítal mě předseda, řek mi u Slívovice, živého či mrtvého, Jožina, kdo přivede, tomu já dám za ženu, dceru a půl jezede. Jožin z Bážin, močálem se blíží, Jožin z Bážin, k vesnici se blíží, Jožin z Bážin, už si zuby brousí, Jožin z Bážin, kouše za jerdousí, na Jožina z Bážin, koho by to napadlo, platí jen a pouze prašku a zletadlo. Říkám, dej mi předsedo, letadlo a prášek, Jožina ti přivedu, nevidím v tom háček, předseda mi vyhověl, ráno jsem se vznesl, na Jožina z letadla, prášek pěkně klesl. Jožin z Bážin, už je celý bílý, Jožin z Bážin, z močálu ven bílý. Jožin z Bážin, dostal se na kámen, Jožin z Bážin, tady je s ním ámen, Jožina jsem dohnal, už održím johoho, dobré každé love, prodám já ho do zoo. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.